Hi, I'm David Goforth, pastor at Grace Baptist Church. So glad that you're taking the time to listen to this podcast. And I want to let you know we're here to help you. If you have any questions, please visit our website, gbcwc.org, and contact us. We'd love to help. All right, here's what we're going to do for our prayer group study sheet time. We're going to answer these questions. Now, here's what I, I, the only thing I don't want you to do is Google it. You can discuss it in your prayer group. You can say, well, hey, what about this first? What about this first? Or what about this or that? And you can discuss it amongst yourselves. We're not going to do it for a long, long time. It's 729 right now based on the clock. I'd like you to kind of get together. And it's, it's pretty simple, straightforward. Is it God's will for us to be happy? Okay. Uh, why? So that's a simple, it's God's will because this, or it's not God's will because this or something. And then identify the following statements as biblical or unbiblical and explain your answer. Pretty straightforward. It shouldn't take a long, long time, um, but I'd like you to go through it. And again, you can use the resources of each other, talk amongst yourself. The only thing I don't want you to do is Google and find out what somebody else says about it because you won't, you won't get anything that way. Actually do that amongst yourselves. And if you have a question, you can raise your hand and I will send a proctor to your group to help you. I'm the proctor. Okay, so let's go ahead and let's get working in our little uh, prayer group, Bible study group, as it, as it were. The reason, you say, Pastor Goforth, why did you have us do this, this group session work? To get you thinking about what it is that you believe about happiness. In our Declaration of Independence, it is delineated as an inalienable right and I have heard some folks actually say, you know, that those are the worst parts of the Constitution when they said the pursuit of happiness. But can I tell you confidently that the pursuit of happiness is probably not what we interpret it to be these days when they wrote it hundreds of years ago. The idea of the pursuit of happiness, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Now, as way of an illustration, the reason that we're talking about this idea of happiness and those different things that you looked at as far as those questions because those are all things that I have heard preached on in my life growing up listening to folks about happiness being a feeling, joy is not, happiness is fleeting, joy is everlasting, happiness depends on circumstances, happiness is worldly, joy is divine. This idea that there's a, there's a difference between the two of those things. We're going to get into that in a moment. But I want you to think about maps. We live in an age of Google telling us where to go or app Siri telling us where to go or different things. But how many of you still to this day, you do not use GPS, you are old school, you look up maps and you, you do things that way. Is there anyone left? Miss Miller? Ginger, who I know for a fact does not like to drive. So these are very short trips, Ginger, right? He wants a paper map. Okay. All right, Brother Gerald. So just a few of you. Okay. How many of you have noticed the change in your brain since GPS? Do you remember when you used to look it up on a map and then you figured out how to get there? It was, it'd be kind of locked in there. And now you have to have the GPS tell you how to get home after church. <laughs> because you're, you're just not used to, it's not getting into the brain and it's not sinking in. Well, believe it or not, we use maps in many different ways. Try to imagine a time before the world had been photographed. We've, we've seen pictures of our earth from space and we've actually seen the outline of the continents. But imagine what it was like before cartography, okay? We live in a time when there's no mysterious world, there's no great beyond, everything has been discovered. 
But try to imagine you're back in the time of the great age of discovery when the North Pole has not yet been discovered. They don't know what's up there. There was a fella in this, during this time, Dr. Augustus Heinrich Peterman. And Dr. Augustus Heinrich Peterman showed how the Gulf Stream moved. And he postulated a theory that because of the Gulf Stream moving the way that it moved, that more than likely there was a great northern sea that would be very, very similar to the Mediterranean. Not as deep as the Atlantic or Pacific, somewhat temperate in its, uh, in its waters. And people went to go and find this temperate polar sea. Now, when you hear this word polar sea, you immediately think, well, there is no polar sea. I mean, it's, it's polar ice caps. There's nothing that breaks. But they didn't know that. And there was an American. There was a fellow named Captain George DeLong. Do we, and there's George DeLong. We have photos of him. This is from the 1800s. This is shortly after the Civil War that this was taken. George DeLong got some other very intrepid explorers, and they decided to get a ship, not a steamship, but an actual sailing vessel to go and sail to this shallow North Sea. Well, they did this. They took off in 1879. They went to find this shallow, warm, Mediterranean-like sea, and... They were pinned in ice. And soon after getting pinned in ice, he realized, okay, um, that cracking that I'm hearing is not the ice cracking. It is my ship cracking. And we found this uh, from different things that were recorded in the time. And he got off of the ship with his sailors that he had remaining. And he continued to trek along, but had no idea about what we now know to be shifting ice. Meaning, didn't realize that the ice was shifting, was changing, was doing different things. And he took all of his supplies. And if you can imagine, for two years, two years, they trekked along in the Arctic looking for that warm, shallow sea. And how many of them made it? See, this hasn't been made into a movie yet, so nobody knows. Okay? Uh, maybe some of you have seen their boat, the, the, the USS Charlotte, uh, National Treasure. Just kidding. That just what came up in a conversation today with Brother Smith. has nothing to do with uh, National Treasure. I know which some of you are watching Hollywood movies now, though. No. The, the two years after treasuring, all of them perished. Now, that is a tragic, tragic story of somebody who had all of the gear they needed. They had all of the experience they needed. They had all of the knowledge that they needed except the right map. They did not have the right map. Now, why are we talking about maps? Well, because all of us have a map. Stephen Covey, some of you may have read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen Covey wrote that book a long time ago. And he wrote that book and many people followed that book and came back to his, he became a, in fact, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People became one of the first audio best-selling books that got past a million uh, copies. And it's still a best-selling book to this day. And he would go around and he would have these conferences. And he, after about his fifth or sixth year that this book was out, he, had, he said by his own testimony, he had a large number of people that came to him and said, all of the principles worked in your book. I am absolutely highly effective. I have been successful in this business or in this business or in this business. But each one of them said, I'm just as unhappy as I was before I was effective. 
And that began to plague Stephen Covey's mind. He thought, well, if, if you're effective, if you're finally accomplishing your dreams, why are you still struggling? This? And then after doing some research, he wrote another book that you may have seen. It's called First Things First. And in this book, First Things First, Covey comes up with this grand idea of you don't just need to learn how to climb the ladder. You need to make sure the ladder is on the right wall. Because if its ladder is not on the right wall, you can get to the top of the ladder and found you've done all of this activity to get to the top of a place you never wanted to be in the first place. You and I operate by a map. You and I have, and this map is what guides us in our decisions. Um, there are different maps. There, some people have maps and, and you, you can see those maps. You have, um, Tom Brady has a map. Now, he hasn't come out and said, I have a map, but you can tell by what Tom Brady says and what he does that he believes in in personal fitness and different things and self-improvement, and that's the way to get ahead. And and Tom Brady's got a lot of people that are trying to figure out, okay, how can I I do that? Because let's be honest, Tom Brady's in the NFL having 350-pound men land on him at an age that most of us were struggling to get out of our cars. And so some people are thinking, okay, Tom Brady's found the right map. Some of you may remember the cartoonist Charles Schultz. He had a map, became very, very successful, and at the end of his life, miserable because his map did not accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Bill Gates has a map, learning improvement. Bill Gates is no longer about being the richest person alive. He's no longer about just being known for being a technological innovator. He wants to learn and improve and how to help other folks improve. He's got this map. What is your map? culture pushes a map. And that map that I'm talking about is how you live your life. It's how you're going to get from the cradle to the grave. It's the path that you're going to take to accomplish what it is. But there's also a map in there. And the map that most people have, it's a map to find fulfillment or happiness. Some people call it different things. They'll call it significance. They'll call it worth. Uh, but, but they want to have value and, and culture will, will push a map. And they say, hey, for you to have significant or worth, you need to live your truth. Don't live by other people's truth. Live your truth. Um, there is 84% say enjoying yourself is the highest goal. 86% say pursuing what you desire most is the most important thing. 91% say look within yourself to find your purpose. Now, If we're going to think biblically about this and we're going to talk about happiness, well, then I want to ask you, what are the two, there have been two basic maps that have been pushed in Christianity as the map for our life. The map until honestly about the last a hundred years, the Christian map was all the same. And what was the Christian map until a hundred years ago? It was the map of self-denial conforming to standards of holiness. And this map was so overwhelmingly powerful that it actually affected theology. If you were to look back, I mean, we look at the Puritans. The Puritans are getting all kinds of press today. You need to read more Puritans, read more Puritans, read more Puritans, read more Puritans. And that's wonderful, except I would tell you, be very careful if you're going to read Puritans when it comes to marriage. Because this map, here's what happened. Puritan men and women married each other and they enjoyed being married And their theology taught them if there is joy and happiness in something, it probably has something to do with the flesh. So you need to avoid joy and happiness in your marriage. Some of you are sitting there, oh, that's what it is. I have married a Puritan. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. 
But the idea is, no, you should not, you should not enjoy the physical aspect of your marriage. You should not enjoy these different things. That, that joy is something that's going to take you away from God. You have to, you have to chase this self-denial. Well, that, that was, the, that was the, the large number of Christians that, that would actually talk about that. That would be the basic map that was, that was put on people for basically the largest part of Christianity until about 100 years ago. And then the map kind of switched. And that's the map that many of us have grown up in. And that's the map of have it your way. If God doesn't say it's wrong in the Bible, then it's not wrong. You can do whatever. Okay. So what is correct? Now, all those things that you looked on your Bible study, I want to keep a look on this. Is it God's will for us to be happy? Okay. I didn't talk to a number of you, but don't raise your hand on this, but some of you may have looked at that and thought, well, happy or joyful? Because I remember at one point in time in my life thinking that, okay, Christians can be happy because it's possible to be joyful because I would listen to people preach about being joyful and I never at once in my life looked at that person and thought, there's joy. I thought, there's anger, there's meanness, there's sternness, there's unhappiness. And they'd say, I'm, I'm joyful. You know, and, and, and I thought, well, there must be a difference between happiness and joy. And some of you probably battled with that. That's why we put in those other questions. Happiness is a feeling. Joy is not. Joy is a spiritual state. It has nothing to do with a feeling. And this, this series that we're going through here on Wednesday night is thinking biblically about this. So let's think biblically a little bit about, about happiness. You say, are you going to answer these questions? Hopefully, as we go through this Bible study. So let's look at a couple of things, okay? What, what, is, what is, according to the Bible, happiness and joy? Is there, I think if I were to walk up to you and ask you, what does it mean to be happy? You would probably talk about emotion or feeling, right? You'd say happy is, you know, when the family's home for Christmas or happy is, you know, half off at the buffet day or happy is when gas gets under a dollar, um, you know, there's different things that, that, that would come to you that would make you smile. And certain things that you treasure make you feel this happy. Well, is this joy something different than happiness? Because we know the Bible talks about joy, but does the Bible talk about happiness? Well, looking at a couple of things, the word in the Old Testament that's most often used for joy, rejoice, and be glad, there's two different, there's actually three different words. Um, they're interchangeable. In Jeremiah 31, 13, the Bible says, Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. Literally, that last phrase could be interpreted, I will gladden their sorrow. will change their sorrow into gladness. And so the word rejoice and the word for joy, the word for glad and the word for joy are used interchangeably. In Proverbs 23, 25, it's done again. It says, thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. And one thing that we sometimes do when we look at words in the Bible is we try to sometimes find differences where there weren't always differences. Do not we, as a culture, do we have more than one word for happy? Okay. Now, are there levels of happiness? Yes, but are they universal? Like some people would say, I'm ecstatic. I'm joyful. I, and they would use different things, but it has the same meaning, basic meaning of happy, joyful. And you see that often in Isaiah 51. Listen to this. You've probably uh, sung this song. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. Have you ever sung this song? How many of you know the song I'm talking about? Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord. Okay. They shall return, come with singing and design, and everlasting joy shall be on their head. They shall obtain 
Gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Now here's the thing. You look at those words for gladness and joy. And you look at the Hebrew definition. The word for joy means joy or gladness. This is in the dictionary. If you look it up in your, in your Hebrew dictionary, the word for gladness means gladness or joy. Not kidding. So the one says, okay, that joy and gladness. What does joy mean? It's joy or gladness. What does gladness mean? It's gladness or joy. Amen. And so we have sometimes come along and we've redefined things and said, okay, gladness, you know what it means to be glad. You know what it means to be happy. You know what it means to be joyful. I, I do not think that the Bible delineates a difference between happiness and joy. That may be surprising to some of you, but we'll, 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 we'll flesh this out a little bit more. Let's look at the New Testament. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Okay? And that is where I often will hear somebody say, aha, see, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. This is talking nothing about happiness. Okay? Acts 12. This is a story when Peter's in jail. Remember, they're praying for Peter. He's in jail and he goes and knocks on the door and the little girl at the door is so excited that he's there that she runs away and forgets to open the door. Acts 12, 13, it says, And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness. You know what word that is? Same exact word as in Galatians 5 for joy, Kara. C-H-A-R-A. Kara. Gladness and joy. It is not as if happiness is something sinful. Joy is something spiritual. It is a feeling of mirth is what it is. And, and we go in and we try to over, over define sometimes. So I, I want you to understand, first of all, that this idea of being happy, joyful, ecstatic, to have mirth, whatever, whatever word you want to say for that feeling of happiness and sometimes it may be very short, but sometimes it may last for a long time, but it, God does not differentiate between happiness and joy. It is not more spiritual to be joyful than it is to be happy. They are the same words interused for each other, okay? Now, if there's no difference in the meaning, is there a difference? And I do want to lay out, there is a difference. Hebrews eleven twenty five. This is talking about Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, when we see that in the King James Bible, the pleasures of sin for a season, that doesn't always communicate exactly what it's saying. It's talking about the temporary pleasure of sin. How many of you know that sin offers pleasure? Okay, well, about 10% of you. For the rest of you, I hate to break it to you, that's how sin works. If sin comes up and says, I'm going to offer you something that will have some type of what you could interpret as a positive impact. Rob a bank, you will have more money. Right? Steal from Walmart, you will have more money. You will have saved money by getting that thing out of the store from Walmart. Okay? Um, blowing your lid and screaming at somebody will help you vent will help you express your inner feelings and will help you settle. There, there, is, there is a short season, a short-term payoff of sin. And that's not me saying that. That's the writer of Hebrews. 
Moses said, I'd rather suffer reproach than just have a short little bit of enjoyment from sin. So this idea, very, very simple. Okay? So looking at that, it's not a difference in the feeling, but there's a different difference. Ecclesiastes 2, look at these. It says, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? See, many times we will see somebody who is a sinner that seems to be enjoying life, and we will say, why do they have joy and I don't have joy? Sinners can have moments of happiness. This is the preacher, Solomon, saying, I chased worldly joy. I went after mirth. I went after laughter. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. It's about Solomon saying, listen, I chased everything on this earth that's supposed to make you happy. And I got it all. I went after it all. And it's all garbage. And the amazing thing is, even though the wisest man that ever lived said that, there's still folks that don't believe that. Because there are so many folks that, I mean, you, you talk to anybody who's not rich and say, hey, money doesn't make you happy, does it? And they'll go, nope, it doesn't. But then tell them, well, I want to give you a million dollars. What immediately happens to their face? If they believe you, a million dollars is probably too much. But if you pulled out a thousand dollars and said, I want to give this to you, they'd probably look at that and they'd probably what? What would you do if somebody went to hand you a thousand dollars in cash? Probably smile. You probably would feel mirth, happiness, joy, exceeding gladness. Why? Well, you don't think that it makes you happy. Well, there's the proof it does. And right now, if somebody came in the, the, the back door and said, I just want to prove it. Brother Dave asked me to do this. I'm going to give everybody $50. Folks would be like, no, going to church does pay. All right. Because there is a certain temporary joy in stuff. There is a new car, a new house, a new whatever. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, I went after it. I went after joy. And it was, it was garbage. All right, so there's a couple examples of happiness, and it gives you their time frame. But now look at Isaiah 51. We've already read it. We're going to put it back up on the screen. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be on their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Same verses in Isaiah 35.10. What is different about this joy here? Don't make the mistake of thinking, okay, this joy and gladness, this is spiritual joy and gladness, so it's not real. No, it's actual joy and gladness. Do you know what this is a prophecy of? Let's talk a little bit and talk about Old Testament prophecies. Very often when we see prophecies in the Bible, there is a dual nature to the prophecy. Here's what I mean by dual nature. There is a current fulfillment of the prophecy that is referring to the people that is going to hear this prophecy the first time. And then there is often a secondary, the dual, the second nature of this prophecy that applies to something else. Okay. When you have that wonderful verse in Isaiah about a foreign to us, a child is born. Okay. A little bit of Bible trivia. That is actually a dual natured prophecy that is both about Isaiah, but also about the longest person's name in the Bible, which is, do you know who it is, Josh? Maher Shalel Hashbaz. Good old Maher Shalel. That's one of those Bible names for some reason didn't catch on. 
Okay, it's open still. There's no Maher Shallow Hashbazes at Grace Baptist Church. So if you want to name your next child Maher Shallow Hashbaz, and think of all the different things you can call them. You can call them Maher, Shalel, Hashbaz, just Baz, Hash. But understand, that was a promise about Maher Shallow Hashbaz. Maher Shallow Hashbaz was born, but guess what? It was also a secondary prophecy about the Messiah. Now, here in, I, in, in uh, this, these passages in Isaiah about the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come a singing to Zion. You and I, we think, okay, that, that's talking about the time when we go to heaven. And when we go to heaven, then we'll have everlasting joy. But there was also another nature of this prophecy. And this was to the people of Israel who were taken captive during the Babylonian captivity. Everlasting joy. was a promise to real live people that weren't in heaven. And to look at this verse and say, okay, well, I'll be joyful when I get to heaven. No, there is a, a lasting joy. There's no difference in that joy between the happiness. It doesn't look different because it's, it's an emotion that will, will, will feel the same, okay? And that emotion is not something that is fleeting. So what is the difference? The difference isn't in the level of mirth or the level of joy or the level of happiness as much as it is in the length and the staying ability of happiness. Listen, one of the growing industries in our country is comedians. And people will look at you many times and say, you go to a place and sit down and listen to somebody talk about the Bible for half an hour? I know what you guys are thinking. We'd love to get out in half an hour. Amen? But it goes much longer than that most of the time. Do you know one of the, so many comedians, because people will go and listen to them. And comedians used to get up and do 35, 40 minutes. And now comedians are doing an hour and many folks are asking for an hour and 15 and an hour and 20. And they'll get up and what do they do? They're getting paid to do what? Give laughs. What are laughs? Okay, we're, I'm preaching on happiness. What do you think I think laughs are? I thought that was an obvious question and you left me hanging. What are laughs? That's, a, that's an expression of happiness. Okay? And, and those are things, now those laughs don't necessarily last, but that is, that is something that is different about the joy that God is talking about. He's not talking about the level of mirth or the level of joy. He's talking about the length, the staying power of that happiness. I am not saying that if you do not follow God, that you'll never laugh, that you'll never uh, have a good time, that you'll never smile. No, no, no. There are pleasures of sin for a season. And God specifically does not delineate how long that season is. That, that, season, that season doesn't necessarily mean just one growing season. It could be for an extended period of time. It really could. There could be folks that are successful from that. But there is a different kind of joy that is absolutely available to you that is not fleeting. It is not circumstantial. It is permanent. Now, in order to get that, we're going to look at one principle before we go, and we'll be done by 810. Okay? So if you're jotting things down, let me give you happiness principle number one. Happiness principle number one. Feelings are followers. Got this from Tim Bryant. Feelings are followers. Many times we look at emotions and we don't understand why the emotions are there. Emotion, feelings always follow something. It's most obvious with happiness. Okay? Now, some of you, how many of you are morning people? You wake up on the right side of the bed most of the time. That's you. You're a happy person. Okay? 
right? Now, you're in a room with other people that know you, and, and being able to say that means, okay, most of the time. And so there is a temperament that just is more geared towards positive side, perhaps, thinking, okay? But even in that situation, somebody say, well, that's just the way I made, but it is still a follower. Here's what I mean. If you tell a joke, if you do something funny, you don't have to think to laugh. Just think about that for a second. If something actually is funny, if it strikes you as funny, you don't have to go, yes, hilarious. <laughs> Doesn't happen that way. As soon as it hits, that emotion follows something. It could be something that you see. Now, do you remember America's Funniest Home Videos? Modern age, if I was talking to teenagers, I'd be talking about Fail Army. Okay? But it's the same thing where people record other people doing something and hurting themselves. That is joyful to me. I mean, every time I'm watching America's Funniest Home Videos and I see a pinata, I'm like, oh boy. What's going to happen here? Where are they going to catch it? In the face? In the midsection? Somebody's going to get hit. Is it an adult? Is it a child wandering by? Is it grandma on a wheelchair? And it always surprises. And when it happens, you chuckle. And that's a reaction. Okay? Feelings are followers. Let me give you some things that they follow and then we'll, we'll finish up. They follow. They follow your beliefs. They follow your beliefs. If you were to go into my office and look around, you would see pictures of my daughters. You would see uh, some beautiful artwork that my daughters and some other people have done. Whenever a, a kid gives me artwork, he draws paper for me, I'll put it up in my office. Um, and so there's a few of those that are up there. But you'll also see different paraphernalia with a big, gigantic yellow M on it. Now, it's amazing. I just said a yellow M, and there were a few people out there that lost their joy as soon as I said that, okay? Believe it or not, we have somebody else in our office. The name will not be mentioned because it, it really is a problem. Uh, they're, they're a fan of the Catholic school, Notre Dame. And uh, I didn't think you were allowed to be a Christian and cheer for Notre Dame. But if Notre Dame wins, they have a feeling. Why do they have a feeling? Because they like Notre Dame. It follows that belief. There's no universal gene. If you're born in South Carolina, it doesn't mean that you have to cheer for the Gamecocks or Clemson. You can be born in South Carolina and actually cheer for a different team. And you believe that team is better for whatever reason. And if that team wins, your emotions will follow that belief that you have placed in that team. And it's completely arbitrary. Okay? It, it really doesn't have that big of an impact, except that you choose to give it that impact. First Peter 1 says this, Whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Some of you have placed your belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it causes an emotion. You have placed your belief in the soon return of Jesus Christ. And when you think of that soon return, it produces an emotion. And that belief proves that it is an impact of our feelings, because feelings are followers. But not only are feelings follow beliefs, they also follow obedience. Listen to John 13, 17. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Jesus Christ has told us, if we attempt to live in obedience... If we know what we're supposed to do and we follow in obedience. Now, not obedience 
for ulterior motives. It's not obedience to try to get things out of God or to get more prayers answered, but because you understand that this is what God wants. And so out of love for him, you respond in obedience. God says that that will produce a happiness in the Christian. So feelings follow beliefs. They follow obedience. But they also follow meditation, thinking, or desires. Listen to this. Proverbs 27, 13. Let's put that up on the screen. Psalm 27, 13. Do you see those first three words, I had fainted? Do you see that? That is, that is a, an attempt by the translators to help us understand the verse. But if you were to interpret this verse verbally, it would be something like this. Unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, That's the way it would be. It's not, I had fainted unless I had seen. It is, boy, unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord. It is, it's, it's, an, it, it's a literary function of, of just being so overwhelmed you cannot finish the sentence. In other words, I would hate to have seen what would have happened to me if I had not believed to see the goodness of the Lord. Now, if you have to believe to see the goodness of the Lord, what does that mean? It's not obvious, right? Sometimes the goodness of the Lord is obvious, is it not? I mean, sometimes the Lord does something for you and your first initial reaction is, wow, thank you, Lord, right? But sometimes you have to believe to see it. But there are times, instead of believing to see the goodness of the Lord, we get overwhelmed with, the waves. I mean, think about Peter. Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. Okay, come on. He jumps out the boat. He's standing on water. Pretty unbelievable, right? But then what does he do? He quits meditating on Jesus, and what does he start meditating on? Do you know what? Every one of us have enough waves in our life to depress the living daylights out of us. Doesn't matter who's in office, doesn't matter how much gas is, doesn't matter how uh, many different parts of your body quit working over the weekend. We all have different things. If we focus on it long enough, it can become a negative. In fact, your spouse that you love so much, if you just stared at one thing on their face long enough, pretty soon you would go, man, that is weird. Some of you are doing it right now. Please wait till after the service, okay? Please wait. And what this is saying is, listen, you, meditation, you meditate, you think, you focus on the goodness of God, you will not faint. But you look at the dire circumstances that are around you, the dire difficulties that are within you, the struggles that are happening, you focus on those things, you, you will faint. Because you'll follow that meditation. And when you look at the goodness around and what is happening, it's a, it's a, it's a different outcome. And then the last thing, uh, feelings follow hopes and desires. Proverbs thirteen twelve: hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when desire comes, it's a tree of life. There's a lot of ways that Satan will try to get you to, to have a false hope. Well, if I serve God, God's going to make all my children healthy. Well, if I serve God, God's going to answer all my prayers. And so you put your hope not in serving God. You don't put your hope in God. You put your hope in answered prayers. Or you put your hope in health. 
I, I have seen some folks that, and listen, I understand that genetics are pretty powerful folks, but I've seen people live in fear, waiting for the day that what happened to their mom or what happened to their dad is going to happen to them. Because, well, my dad and his brothers and his dad and their brothers, they all died of this at this age, and, and there's just this fear that overwhelms and this expectation. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Unmet expectations, if you pin your hopes on something that is not assured, you will always run the risk of being disappointed. So what can you put put your hopes in? This should be an easy one for a Wednesday night crowd. You can always pin your hope in the Lord. You can always pin your hope in his goodness. You can always pin your hope in your trust, in his mercy, in his faithfulness. And so understand, when you are struggling, now we've we already studied a number of weeks ago, we studied through depression. This is the opposite side of that, okay? When you're, when you're looking at your heart, well, why don't I often feel this happiness? Why don't I have the eternal redeemed of the Lord joy that was talked about in Isaiah 51? Well, I would take a step back, look at your beliefs, your obedience, your meditation, and your desires, Because if my desire is that my wife will never challenge my thinking, because that will make me happy, I'm probably going to be disappointed. Because I have a good wife that challenges my thinking. And if I put all of my hope in, well, my body is no longer going to break down, I'm going to maintain a perfect body until God comes and gets me back, then I'm I'm going to be disappointed. I've never had that hope because my brother, being nine years older than me, frequently calls me on his birthday and tells me what quit working for him his la- that last year. <laughs> this is what to expect, David. This is, what, this is the last good year for this. <laughs> He's such an encourager. But the reality is, if we pin our beliefs in something else, listen, if you put your beliefs in, well, we're going to have a Republican president, that joy will come, but it'll be fleeting. And you'll, you'll see a good return at, a, you know, at some kind of primary or something, and you'll, you'll get joyful and you'll get excited. But you know what? It's possible to go to bed the evening of the election and wake up just as happy and not know who won. It's possible. See, it's not, it's not fleeting. We're going to look at some more things next week. I told you I would keep you to 810, and I have kept my promise. You're welcome. Let's stand. We'll have a word of prayer. Some of you are going, wait, it's past 810. Yes. But I did keep you until 810. And that was the promise. All right. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll go. Lord, thank you for teaching us, for instructing us. Lord, for giving us hope through your Son, through your Holy Spirit, from your Word. Help us to uh, live in that. Now go before us as we go our separate ways. Help us to stay focused and fixated on you. Lord, help us to glorify you. Lord, we keep our Keep our meditations, Lord, where they need to be. Keep our beliefs where they need to be. Lord, correct them if they need correcting. Lord, help us to, to, to obey, to enjoy you and your presence. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. See you Sunday. Mm-hmm.